Well, I'm thankful for our little buddy, Cruz, that stayed there the whole time. And uh, yes, through all the songs. And I think he sang too, didn't he? A little bit. That's good. It's wonderful. Fantastic. We're training him well. Thanks, Mom and Dad, for doing that. Father, thank you so much for allowing us to come today. We bless your holy, holy, holy name. You are worthy of our praise. You are our creator. You are a redeemer. You're our sustainer. And you're our savior. Lord Jesus, thank you for coming. Thank you for living a perfect life, for dying on the cross for our sins, taking upon yourself all of the wrath that we so richly deserve. Lord, we can go free because of you, because you died for all men, all women, all boys, all girls. And we give you the praise. And Lord, today as we uh, talk a little bit more about the gospel of Luke, I pray that you give us open ears, open hearts, and quicken our wills, Lord, that we may do what you have us to do with the, what we're going to be hearing today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, after two weeks of orientation uh, toward the gospel of Luke, Today we get to jump into it, the good news of Jesus the Messiah, Luke's inspired version. And I trust that you're excited to jump in as well because you've been reading through the Gospel of Luke, haven't you? Go like this, yes, yeah, I heard some people do it. And you know, if, and if you've accomplished that goal of reading through the Gospel of Luke, preferably in one setting, got another challenge. You know where I'm going with this. Read it again. Read it again. It's a wonderful thing. It's a great exercise to sit there. Again, two and a half hours. It doesn't take all that long to do, right? Two and a half hours is not that much. So anyway, do that. And I, I really, uh, I, I think that you would really appreciate, you know, going through the Gospel of Luke again and again. So we're going to start the story today where Luke did, talking about Zechariah and Elizabeth and why Luke included them. In his gospel. So let me give you the lay of the land today. I'm going to give us, we're going to read through a few verses at a time and explain some things along the way. And then I want to point out some profound life lessons that I found here in the lives of this godly couple. So open your Bibles if you haven't done so already to Luke chapter 1, verse 5. We're going to go through 25 today. It's found on page 947 of your few Bible if you need that number. And so let's let's read this passage, a few few verses. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and the statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. To stop right there for a second. I find some irony here in Luke as he begins his orderly account. You know, it's a double-edged sword, really. See, because he starts off, Luke starts off in his good news about Jesus by mentioning the name of Herod. And that's bad news, really bad news, because Herod was a scoundrel. He's well known for constructing many buildings around Israel mostly because of his own pleasure. No, Herod the Great was equally known for having destroyed his personal life. Because of his paranoia that someone might, uh, in his family might usurp his throne, he had three of his sons of his 15 kids killed. And he married 10 women, 
and he even put his favorite wife, Mary Amney, to death. Well, you know, Herod wasn't well liked from the people that he was ruling over as well. He even gave orders that upon his death, that some Jewish elders were going to be killed. They were going to be put to death as well, so that tears would be shed on the day of his passing. And by the way, Herod was appointed king of the Jews by Rome. And so when the Magi came to town asking, where is one who was born king of the Jews? You know, you can kind of figure out what was going on in Herod's mind in his heart. No one he wanted to get rid of Jesus. I see yet more bad news at the beginning of Luke's good news. And it had to do with godly Zechariah and Elizabeth. They were old and they had no kids. And as we're all probably aware, Jewish women who were barren were very low on the cultural ladder. Tragically, barren women were considered cursed by God. And this is not the way things were supposed to be, right? Because after all, what was the first command that God gave Adam and Eve? Have babies. Many, many, many babies. And so even though Zechariah was a priest, and he played a very important role in their culture, in their community, because Elizabeth could not produce a child, the couple wore the great stigma of shame. So nowadays we know, because we're a little bit more enlightened, that the problem of infertility could be the husband's fault. Right, guys? Could be. But of course, we see things here from a 21st century healthcare point of view. You know, today, public shaming is a powerful thing, isn't it? You know, the threat of being canceled is a powerful tool to keep many spouting the right rhetoric. But what we face is nothing compared to what they were facing back in the day. Sophocles, an ancient Greek playwriter, described shame's effects in his day like this. It's better not to live at all than to live disgraced. Some beginning to the good news story of Jesus, according to Luke. But what this tells me, though, is that Luke was, in his account, he was truthful in his account. And that's the other side of the sword's double edge. For after all, history is written by the winners, so says Orwell. Luke could have started his gospel anywhere he wanted, true? But as I pointed out a couple of times now, the Lord inspired the scripture writers not only what to put down, but the order in which he was to put them down. Now, speaking of such things as this, I personally had a little bit of a struggle thinking about how to how to figure out how to put this together the first couple of chapters. You know, for a while, I actually thought that I could actually improve on Luke's orderly account about Jesus and John. I actually thought that I could make Luke's account even more orderly by telling the entire story of John first and then the entire story of Jesus second. But I was but I was only kidding myself. See, it was the Holy Spirit who inspired Luke to write what he wrote and how he wrote it. See, he put the stories of John and Jesus side by side rather than one story after another. So all that to say, thank you for consistently praying for me as I prepare these messages. And it saved me from my attempt at being clever. See, what you or me don't need is for anybody behind this pulpit to give us something clever concerning the message. Horrifically, fresh new views of God's eternal truth abound in our day. Isn't that true? 
And I put that in scare quotes. Fresh new truth. The only thing that Grace United needs from this pulpit is for the one standing behind it is to tell us three things. What God says, what it meant back in the day, and taking those eternal truths and applying to their life, to our lives. Isn't that right? But back to Luke. There's a lesson that I think we can glean from this section. Though things can look very dark from our perspective, from God's perspective, all will be okay in his time. The human race has had its fill of wicked rulers like Herod through the years. So what better time for Jesus, the righteous king, to come into the world? You know, Paul commented on the timing of Jesus coming in Galatians 4, 4 and 5. And he says, but when the fullness of time had come, in other words, the perfect time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive the adoption of sons. There's something else we need to keep in mind as well. We live in a fallen world. Disease and death are part and parcel of this life. You know, and Zechariah and Elizabeth, they greatly suffered all their married lives. That stigma of having no kids. See, there was nothing they could do about it except pray, which is the best thing to do. And pray they did. And in his time, God would provide a remedy. And so the bottom line for us is that it's, we're not in the, at the end of the story. We're in the middle of God's drama. Let's not jump to conclusions because of what we see around us. See, God is just. He's concerned about our plight. He sees, he knows, and he will glorify himself in his time. So let's now turn the corner and read verses 8 to 10 together. Now, while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he, as in Zechariah, was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. There's twice a day that the priests would go in there and do that. And so this particular time was in the afternoon. But, you know, Zechariah won the priestly lottery. Let me give you a little backstory. The number was 18,000. That's about how many priests there were in Zechariah's day. And every division had 750, right around 750 priests. Because the sheer number of priests that were available to do things like burn incense, a rule was created. Because the maximum number of times a priest could serve to burn incense in the temple was exactly one time in their life. And many were not even given the chance. And so Zechariah, by lot, was chosen. What a high honor that would be if you were a priest. And the task was as described. The priest would put the incense on the altar. You remember in, in the tabernacle and temple, you've got the, the altar of incense right in front of the, the, uh, the, the curtain, the veil. And that's where the prayers were to be done. And that incense was to be burned. And when the incense was lit, that signified the prayers being raised up to the Lord. And the Lord would be pleased. So let's continue verses 11 to 13. And there appeared to him, to Zechariah, an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense, the place of honor. And when Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Don't be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. 
and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. I guess Zechariah will be afraid. I know I would be afraid, because I'm sure that every priest who went in to burn incense was visited by an angel, right? He came to Zechariah with really, really good news. After all these years, God was going to say yes to this godly couple's most ardent prayers. Elizabeth was going to bear him a son. Zach, call him John. And that name means God is gracious. Can you imagine what was going on in Zechariah's mind? Who were some of his ancestors? Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, Elkanah and Hannah. These were Samuel's parents. All of these wives and more were barren until the Lord opened their wombs. After all these years, God was going to be gracious to Zechariah and Elizabeth. Now, some of us know the joy of answered prayer, even after we've been praying for years and years for something. That's, that's happened here at Grace United, right? And some of us have seen miracles. But all of it is due to the grace of God. Speaking of prayer, let me invite you. Let me urge you. And if I could, but I can't, let me command you to come join us Tuesday nights. Pray with us, 7 to 8. What we do, we come together. We don't talk about prayer. We don't have a Bible study. We simply say, let's pray. And for an hour, we pray. We sit before the Lord. We lift up our praises to him. We ask him for things. We pour out our laments. And at 8 o'clock, or closely after that, we finish. We do this every week. Let me encourage you to come and pray. See, Scripture says, we have not, finish it. The Lord tells us to literally keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. For everyone who asks, continues to ask, receives. And the one who continually seeks, finds. And to the one who continually knocks, it will be open. So join us. So let's continue the angel's announcement to Zechariah concerning John in verses 14 to 17 of Luke 1. And the angel said, And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and to the and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. This, my friends, is no ordinary kid. We've all heard good things come to those who wait, but wow. Of course, Zechariah and Elizabeth, they're going to have joy and gladness. You know, their prayer will be answered with a yes, and Elizabeth's shameful stigma will be removed. And many will rejoice when they see John born and, and hang out, as it were, and live at uh, his mom and dad's house. It'll be good to see a little kid running around Zechariah and Elizabeth's house, you know, while the elderly couple try to keep up. But now notice how the angel describes John. First, he will be great before the Lord. As one author comments, he will be significant 
in God's plan. Second, John must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. John will be set apart for an extraordinary purpose. No wine or strong drink would remind Zechariah of the one who takes a Nazarite vow. This is a person who, for a time, is completely separated unto God. Think none as an N-U-N, not N-O-N-E, N-U-N, or monk. See, John would have extreme consecration to the Lord all of his life. He would not live a so-called ordinary life. Think of his diet. Other places, he would eat bugs and honey. Such will be the life of a forerunner, of the forerunner, of the Messiah. The angel also said that John would be filled with the Holy Spirit from day one. So let me give us a brief word about the Holy Spirit's ministry in John's day. See, the Holy Spirit will come upon and fill people for certain tasks. And when that task was done, he'd leave. Another time the Holy Spirit would leave is if the person failed in their task and they would blatantly sin, the Holy Spirit would leave. You know, think of David when he committed adultery with Bathsheba and then he would have Uriah, her husband, killed. As we know, the Lord used the prophet Nathan to get David's attention. And part of Nathan's ministry resulted in David's confession of his sin. And he writes that sin down, writes that, uh, that confession down in Psalm 51. And here's what he writes in Psalm 51, 10 to 12. He begged the Lord in this. He said, create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Then he says, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. See, the Holy Spirit anointed David as king. And David was terrified of losing the Spirit, because if the Holy Spirit would leave him, he would be without the power to serve the people as king. But with John, there's every indication that the Holy Spirit would be with him and set him apart for special service for his entire life. And what service would that be? What service would he be set apart for? Verses 16 and 17 tell us. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. The short answer is that John's ministry was to prepare the people for the visitation of the Messiah. John will turn many of the children as in the people of Israel, to the Lord. What is that? Nothing other than good old-fashioned repentance. That's, that's what the word turn means. John's ministry will be marked with the same intensity and zeal that, and power that Elijah had. In other words, people will be unable to ignore his ministry. They will either receive or reject his call for repentance, but no one will be able to ignore it. What would be the focus of John's ministry? Two things. First, turning the hearts of the fathers to the children. What's that? In a nutshell, it's the Shema and its effects that it should have on the fathers in Israel. We talked about that when we studied Deuteronomy. Remember that? A while back, a long time ago. Seems like years. 
Hear again the Shema because the word Shema means to hear. And here's the facts also in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 7. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today, they shall be on your heart, fathers. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. This is what the fathers were supposed to be doing all the way through, but obviously they did not. Simply put, part of John's focus is to powerfully call out the fathers to repentance for not taking spiritual headship in their families, to teach their families the ways of Torah. We said this so many times, didn't we? The Torah was not given to the world. The Torah was given to God's people to show God's people how to live. That's what this was all about. And the people turned away from God's ways. And, and John was going to call them back to this. Second, God was, John was going to call the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. What's that? John, again, will powerfully call disobedient Jews back to the ways of Torah, wisdom of the just. So when we get to Luke 3, though, we're going to see John's ministry in action. We're going to see this prophet not demand just a change of mind, but as he says in Luke 3, 8, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. In other words, one's words and behavior must match where it's not really repentance. You've done that, haven't you? You say, oh, I'm sorry, but not really mean it. Now we're talking about a change of behavior and a, and, and a pronouncement, a confession. I've, I've blown it. I'm going to change. And then our behavior is, is done accordingly. That's what repentance is all about. So what do we have here? In a word, John's ministry will not be a popular one. To call God's people to repentance, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared, as the angel told a visibly shaken Zechariah. But what did God have in mind here? Why would the Lord raise up John to call people back to the ways of Torah? What would a return to the ways of Torah observance do to prepare the way of salvation for the visitation of Messiah? How's that work? Isn't Christ's life and ministry a sure sign to demonstrate that broken, disobedient, rebellious people need a Savior? Isn't it how we see the gospel? Well, apparently that's not the way it's working here. Briefly, though, let me remind us of what Moses said was the reason for Israel, for God's people, to obey the Torah. And I would like for us to turn back to Deuteronomy chapter five or chapter four, verses five to eight, to see this once again. Either go back there in your Bibles or just listen or just read along in the manuscript. Because here is, is an amazing thing. What John was doing was basically calling people back to the true reason and to the true meaning of what living Torah was all about. Moses says, See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, the nations, the Gentiles, who, when they hear all these statutes, they will say this, Surely this great nation, is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it 
as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him. And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? In other words, it's always been God's MO, his method of operation, that his people as a corporate body display a bright witness to the nations, to the Gentiles, by obedience to his ways, the ways of Torah in the Old Testament. When God's people, as a people, live in obedience to his ways, what does that do? It makes the nations, the Gentiles, sit up and take notice. Isn't that the same way, though, with us as followers of Jesus? We're talking about obedience here. We're not talking about just grace as in interpreted or misinterpreted, just do what you want because I got freedom in Christ. No, not at all. What did Jesus say? He said, if you love me, you as in y'all will keep my commandments. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you as fellow Christians love one another. Right before the cross, he said to the Father, I pray that they may be one, unified. Why? So that the world may believe that you sent me. After Jesus was raised, right before he went back to heaven, he said this to his disciples, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, and teaching them, teaching the Gentiles, to obey everything I have commanded you. What are these words of Jesus but a New Testament way of saying the exact same thing that Moses said to his people? Obedience to the ways of the Lord helps others to sit up and take notice. It's to set a bright witness. We are to live out his ways. So let's continue reading verses 18 to 20 in uh, Luke 1. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. The angel said to him, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until that day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. All of a sudden, Zechariah was struck dumb. He could not speak for a long time. Have you ever longed to take back the words that were coming out of your mouth as you were speaking them? I wonder what Zechariah was thinking when he was demanding a sign, because that's what he was doing. But perhaps you've cut some slack, though. Maybe we can all do that. Can you imagine being in Zechariah's shoes? He was having kind of a hard day, you think? A ministry of a lifetime where you have just one shot at making this right? He burned the incense at the altar. You're absorbed in making sure that all things are right when all of a sudden you get a little surprise from an angel. And then the angel tells you this great news that not only you're going to have a son, but how special he's going to be. He's going to be the forerunner to the Messiah, and your son will get the people ready to meet him. Well, we might be tempted to give Zachariah a little slack, but but the angel Gabriel was not ready to give him some slack. See, when Gabriel told Zechariah who he was, I'm sure at that point he thought, why in the world did I say what I said? What, am I crazy? Surely there's nothing that God cannot do. And so Gabriel told Zechariah, in essence, hey, Zach, a little hasty in your words, aren't you? 
Do you really need a sign to convince you that God can carry this thing out? No, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do. Because your words are way out of line, demanding a sign from the throne of God, I'm going to give you a lot of time to think over what I just said. For you to ponder the good news that I just gave you, you will not speak before John is born. What caused Zechariah, a godly man, to tell Gabriel, one sent from the throne of God, that he needed the Lord to give him a sign to validate that Gabriel was speaking the truth and not a lie? One possibility is what I suggested, that Zechariah was so wrapped up in doing things right that he missed the visitation. He didn't take the time to really process what's going on. Or it might have been maybe a business-as-usual sort of thing. Maybe Zechariah was qualified and trained in the incense, to, to burn the incense as all priests were, and maybe Gabriel caught him off guard because he was not expecting that visitation. Would you agree? Or perhaps Zechariah and Elizabeth stopped praying after so many years. Maybe they just kind of gave up. Whatever the reason, Zechariah wasn't ready to experience a visit from Gabriel. What can we learn from this? When we go before the Lord, whenever we serve him, let's live in readiness. Let's live in expectation that God will show up. Do we really believe that God can do what we say he can do? See, we read it on the pages of the scriptures, don't we? Do we really understand what we read? When we pray or encounter the scripture or serve others, is it business as usual? Do we expect the Lord to show up? You know, one thing I'm realizing on an increasingly deeper level in my own life is that when we come together for worship, that we don't have to overcome the Lord's reluctance for him to meet with us. We're part of his bride. Sorry, guys, we're part of his bride. And what bridegroom doesn't want to meet with his bride? He wants us to live in his presence, to be with us. What makes the Lord angry, though, is when we have a habit to, as it were, put God on hold on our phones while we chat with other gods. But if he is our goal, if he is who we want, then he will be glad to show up, won't he? So let's continue on to verses 21 to 23. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. How sad for the people and Zechariah. Because of Zechariah's hasty words and Gabriel's discipline, Zechariah was unable to complete his ministry. Did you know that? One of the privileges of the priest when he was burning incense, that after he prays and blesses the Lord in the temple, he would go out and bless the Lord or bless the people outside the temple with the ironic blessing found in Numbers 6, 24 through 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. What great words of blessing are these from the Lord himself? See, God is good to his people. Would you agree? 
But notice what the Lord sees in this blessing in verse 27. The priest shall put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. By saying those words, God was saying, you are putting my name upon them. The priest will put God's name on the people when they speak this blessing. But according to what the Lord says here, what happens when these words are absent? The blessing is not on the people. If the words of the ironic blessing are not spoken over the people, God's name is not placed on them, and they will go without God's blessing. But back to Luke. When Zechariah came out of the temple, tragically, what could he not do? Pronounce the blessing. Because Zechariah was struck dumb, the people could not hear the blessing from him. Now, doubtless, there were other priests who did pronounce the blessing as a stand-in for Zechariah, but in a sense, he robbed the people of his ministry. And Zechariah, who only had one shot at this, was unable to finish his ministry. He was never able to do it again. So when he completed his tour of priestly duty, he went home. And for the next 40 plus weeks, Zechariah was not able to talk. You think that he has some regrets? You betcha. Let's read the final two verses of this passage, verses 24 and 25. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach from among the people. I see here the height of elation regarding Elizabeth, even though she would have many unpleasant things happen to her body and her heart. But it will be worth it all, right? Because after all, the Lord looked on me, she said, to take away my reproach. I also see what may well be some despair regarding Zechariah. See, at home, Zechariah could not utter a sound. He was not readily able to communicate to his wife and with his wife. All he had was, well, his first Palm Pilot, right? To express himself. Uh, Zechariah's last act of public ministry ended in silence. And now the silence continued throughout Elizabeth's pregnancy. And so I see here a sobering lesson in these verses 18 to 25, that choices have consequences. Because Zechariah was hasting his words, he was temporarily disqualified from fulfilling his ministry. Tragically, even his ministry at home was hampered because he cannot speak to the most important person in his life his beloved, trying to help her in her pregnancy. He couldn't help her verbally. Remember Moses back in the book of Numbers, and God told him to do what? Speak to the rock. But what did he do? Struck the rock. And just like that, Moses was disqualified from entering the promised land. And for all of us, potentially, all it takes is one word, one text. One wrong phone call, one wrong action done at the wrong time in the wrong context, and our witness for the Lord is damaged, sometimes permanently. Now praise him for his mercy, but sometimes the Lord will allow the full force of our folly to come through. Serious business, isn't it? Because of one sinful act, word or even attitude, it can end up in one's permanent disqualification from serving others in ministry. Now, I'm of the very strong opinion 
that should I become unfaithful to my beloved, and I have, and I commit adultery, that I am now permanently disqualified from being a pastor anywhere, not just here. And I believe that it ought to be the same way for every pastor. See, there's no wiggle room of any kind for immorality when it comes to a person being a pastor. That's why I implore you to pray for me. How we all need to pray for pastors to be people of integrity. For in large measure, that's all a pastor has to give to his congregation. And so I close out this message. I want to give you two perspectives that we're going to revisit over and over again as we go through the Gospel of Luke. And that is barrenness and fruitfulness. Barrenness and fruitfulness. See, in some sense today, our passage for today sets the tone for the rest of the book of Luke. Herod and Zechariah and Elizabeth. These are two vivid reference points where there is complete barrenness. Herod represents barren, pagan, governmental authority over Israel. Remember, they were living in occupied territory. Rome is the occupier of the land the Lord gave to his covenant people. But what was soon to happen? The fulfillment of the prophecy of Micah 5.2, among many others. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be a ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from of ancient days. In other words, though Israel is ruled by a pagan government, the day will arrive when that government will return to divine fruitfulness, for Messiah is coming. Second perspective is what Zechariah and Elizabeth display. Out of Elizabeth's barrenness comes amazing spiritual fruit. See, the Lord opened the womb of Elizabeth, and she will bear a son who will call the people to national repentance, to prepare the people for the coming of the Messiah. But as we will see, few people will repent. As we're going to see time and time again, as a nation, Israel will be barren still. And their spiritual barrenness will eventually cause the Lord Jesus, as a grain of wheat, to fall into the ground and die. But his death, won't it? It'll be a source of living bread that he might feed not just Israel, but the entire world with salvation. We're going to see Simeon's words again. But here's what he said as he held the Messiah in his arms when he was presented, when Jesus was presented at the temple. My eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all the peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Amazing, isn't it? Again, notice the order, light to the Gentiles. So what's in a name? John means God is gracious. And for all of us who have tasted of the grace of God, we have seen that the Lord is good. Amen? May the Lord see spiritual fruit. For the last thing we want for him to do is to see our lives and evaluate our lives at the judgment seat only for him to say, depart from me for I never knew you. So right before we pray, I think it would be a good idea for us to remind ourselves of the spiritual fruit that the Lord wants to see in our lives as we stand before him on that day. So I believe it's on the screen. So let's recite these character qualities, this spiritual fruit that the Lord wants to see in our lives, that is there if the Lord is in our lives. It's not there 
if he's not in our lives? Let's recite together. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. This is the life of a Christian. This is the normal Christian life. Let's pray. Our Lord and God, you are deadly serious when it comes to fruit bearing. Life and death are issues that you are vitally concerned about. And Lord, when you came on the scene, you were looking for fruit. But as a nation, you were bitterly disappointed. Lord, I pray that here at Grace United, that when you see us, that you won't be disappointed. Lord, help us to understand what the gospel really is. It is about repentance. It's about turning toward you. Even as even as Paul talked to the, the Thessalonians, he said, everybody knows how they turned to you, Lord, from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for you, Lord Jesus, from heaven, the one who delivered them from the wrath to come and the one who delivers us from the wrath to come. So, Lord, I pray that you would help us to be so serious, to be absolutely serious and to be thinking more and more and, and, and deeper and deeper as far as what the gospel really means. It really is good news. Help us, Lord, to apply it, to live it out. Lord, help us to live in the way that you would have us to live because that is really the only, the only path and the only way of blessing. Help us, Lord, to love you more. Help us, Lord, to serve you better because you loved us first and you loved us to the uttermost. And Lord, you told us in your word, if you love me, keep my commandments. Now I pray, Father, as we turn our attention to yet a couple more acts of, of worship, I pray that these acts of worship will be acceptable in your sight. Lord, I pray that you would help us to, to give from a heart that's overflowing and, and full of gratitude for what you've done for us. And I pray, Lord, now as well as we sing, help us, Lord, to sing with all of our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. And we'll thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Before we have our, before we have our, our offering, I want to just to pray or pray over you or give you the ironic blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.